0: Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Tourible and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
1: Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hello, everyone. Happy Thursday and welcome back to Trainer Talks and Tales. I am Daisy.
0: And I'm Tess. Now, we're both really excited about this chat. One, because we get to talk about whales, and Daisy loves to talk about whales, of course. Uh, but two, is because the guest on this podcast is actually one of my good friends Jenna. Anyway we'll get into that in a minute. Daisy how was your week?
1: Yeah I'm so excited for this chat too but my week has been really good. I actually have two recommendations for you this week Tess. Now, you might have seen it floating around on the internet this week, as it is a recent study that's just been published, and it was co-authored by the Animal Welfare Expertise founder, Dr. Elizabeth Isabella Clegg, uh, which showed the improved life expectancy in four different marine mammals, which is really interesting and really cool because one of them is polar bears. It is actually polar bear week this week, I just found out too, but we're also chatting all about polar bears on our next episode with another guest, which is exciting. Um, But as per the AWE, they actually quoted that these improvements are attributed to modern advancements in animal welfare science and management practices. I don't know about you, Tess, but I regularly get asked quite a common question that I'm sure a lot of people get in different facilities, which is how do animals live longer in human care? So it's great that we now have super solid science data to support the longer life expectancy for marine mammals in human care.
0: Yeah, sounds good. And I love that it's so timely that we were recording a uh polar bear podcast and it's polar bear month so good to know (laughs) yeah
1: yeah definitely um and you can actually check out that full article just on their instagram i'm pretty sure so definitely recommend that and then quickly secondly i just wanted to recommend my recent chat with john from the safari on his podcast i know we had him on our podcast but we also had the opportunity to sit down and chat to him i had an absolute blast and felt really privileged to be on there so please go and have a listen
0: yeah, I recommend it too. I had a listen the other day and it sounded really good. You too. um, I had a good chat. It was very easy to listen to, that's for sure. Well, uh, my recommendation is pretty much the same, just on that, the Rossafari podcast. I've been getting into it and we were on his the other day and we did some zoo news and it was a fun chat. So, But that's my recommendation, copying daisies. Love it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you can now- listen to us really badly pronouncing different American words. <laughs>
0: Oh gosh, it makes me cringe, like my pronunciation of certain things. I was like, let me just try it and see how I go. And I did terribly. Anyway, (laughs) that was a laugh. Uh, As we mentioned before, we are joined by Jenna Williams today, uh, a longtime friend of mine who moved away from working directly within zoos and aquariums to pursue the world of research and in particular whale research.
1: Yeah, now Jenna has some really amazing experience from all around the world and is super generous with information on how best to get into a research job. So Tess, let's get into it. Jenna, welcome to Trainer Talks and Tales podcast. Tess and I are so excited to chat to you and chatting about my all-time favorite animal, which makes me even more excited for this episode. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, before we start getting into the questions, we always start our episodes with the fast five. So are you happy if I get straight into that?
2: I'll do my best. I'm very indecisive, so I'll try to be on it.
1: (laughs) Okay, cool. All right, let's go. Bagels or pancakes? Bagels. Killer whales or humpback whales? Humpbacks. Birthdays or Christmas? Birthdays. (laughs) Owls or eagles? Oh, eagles. And, And finally, sour lollies? yes
0: or no yes good answers I love that I actually knew that they would stump you as well I was like you yeah. got to ask her <laughs> about her birthday because she loves her birthday <laughs> <laughs> so good now um, Jenna before we get into this uh, I don't know if I'm being overly dramatic but I just wanted to actually thank you um, because I wouldn't be where I am today without you uh, I don't know if you remember but honestly like Mm, let's go back 11 years or something I was speaking to you at a party and you're like Tess would you be interested in working with raptors and I was like oh uh, yeah I, I guess and you're like yeah I think um you know we've been talking about it and we think you'd be really good for the team we should apply um I'll give you the scripts and without that meeting Jenna <laughs> I would not be where I am today so uh I'm very grateful and I reflect on that all the time so thank you very much <laughs>
2: yeah well i do remember that very clearly so yeah
0: (laughs) yeah lone pine party changed my life
1: (laughs) and look at you now tess just killing it i know
0: just really launched into the raptors thing hey (laughs) (laughs) um well enough about me let's get to you we thought we'd get straight into talking about your incredible career So obviously you've varied from terrestrial animals to marine and we discussed you worked with me at Lone Pine many moons ago. But you even worked at Daisy's facility Sea Life, which was then called Underwater World. Can you give us a bit of a brief outline of where it all began and where you are now? Uh, Yeah, it's
2: a bit of a long and crazy story and I'll try and keep it PG. Uh, (laughs) But... um, (laughs) Yeah, there are just a few like really sort of points in my life where you know, turning points, I guess I call it, where something has happened, like you were just saying, just a conversation and it sleds to something, this, you know, this amazing opportunity. So I've had a few of those in my life. And I guess I always wanted to work with marine life. As a kid, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a dolphin trainer. Like, that's what I want to do. But it was, there wasn't a lot of opportunity in marine space. So I sort of started with terrestrial, loved it. Don't get me wrong. Like, oh, man. The, the grey fuzzies, they still get me every time. <laughs> Koalas, for people who didn't get that. Yeah, and then I guess um, I actually applied for a job at Underwater World and was unsuccessful. And off that, I, long story short, ended up um, going and working in Thailand for three weeks at an animal rescue centre. Yeah, so from there, then I I met this researcher who was working on whales and dolphins in Scotland, And just, again, another, you know, rare coincidence and ended up sharing a cab with this researcher and um, just from a few, you know, half an hour conversation, thought, wow, this is something really cool and then went back to Australia and um, ended up volunteering at Underwater World and getting in um that way and getting a job there and you know it was like my dream job and I was there for two years and had the most incredible time working with the seals and otters when they had them um you know a few years ago and then yeah it just wasn't quite what I was after and decided to just reach out to this researcher that I met two years prior and he happened to remember me and then offered me a job in Scotland and I was like kind of call it my quarter-life crisis because I, like, left everything behind and moved off to, you know, the other side of the world. Um, and, yeah, from from there I ended up seeing, we used to have a poster in my office of the Minky well Project, which was at James Cook University, and I thought, when I go back to Australia, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, then my meeting with the leader of that particular project was, again, just another random coincidence um and yeah basically been working with that research project ever since and now i'm doing a phd and it's just like yeah it's just been a crazy whirlwind of i guess being at the right place at the right time but also um seizing opportunities when they present themselves to you that's
1: just yeah. so interesting to hear all about that and especially just how organically everything happened for you like it seems like you really had a passion and a desire from the start but you were pretty flexible with how that pathway was created and now obviously it's taken you on a possibly a slightly different direction than what you have planned but still working with marine life and you know making such an impact which is so cool to hear yeah,
0: yeah and what I got from that is that you just said yes to so many things like obviously we have a bit of an outline of your career before we start the podcast just so that we have a few ideas and there's just so much and I'm you're obviously just being like, yep, that sounds cool. I'll give that a go. Yep, I'll do this. And that's that's awesome. That's how you um have these amazing opportunities by saying yes to these things.
2: Yeah, definitely. Being flexible, I guess, helps. Um, But I guess also having, like, I guess a bit of advice I could give to anyone is don't be afraid to, to go after something. Like all of those situations were my turning points. I could definitely have not have followed through or you know gone you know and thought oh they're not going to remember me I'm not going to bother reaching out or oh this I'm too you know nervous to talk to this person that's like oh well what are you going to lose so just do
1: it. My dad always told me it's who you know not what you know and that seems very much relevant for your pathway. Yeah. Now obviously you've said that you know research was kind of something that you stumbled on Was it anything, like, was research anything that you'd thought about prior to getting into the industry or completely, you know, just naturally came across it?
2: No, there is no way in a, (laughs) I never thought in a million years, if, if, you know, even when I was, when I first started Lone Pine, you know, if you said to me that I was going to be doing a PhD, I'd laugh in your face. (laughs) (laughs) Even, even, you know, probably, gosh, about six months before I started it, I was like, oh, that's crazy. I'd never do that. But um, yeah, it's... um, just it, it kind of when I started working in Scotland, that's where I really sort of got a bit of a passion for it. But uh, it's been a long journey to get to where I am now.
0: Yeah, so you've said that you've created that uh, taste for it perhaps in Scotland um, and you volunteered at CRRU. Can you tell us what CRRU actually is? Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> so it stands yeah.
2: for the Cetacean Research and Rescue Unit and um uh, the, the guy who started it, on it he never really intended it for it to be a public <laughs> sort of name i think he would have chosen something different um so basically um the organization uh, it's a charity in um, northern northern scotland and their primary focus is working with um, bottlenose dolphins northern minke whales and harbor Porpoise, porpoises Porpoise, porpoises so yeah a lot of people are a bit surprised when so say, oh, there's like heaps of whales and dolphins in Scotland. They're like, what? But um, it's actually quite a really important area. Um, there's a lot of salmon rivers that feed into the, the survey area, which is called the, the Moray Firth. A lot of salmon areas, salmon rivers um, flow in there, so like the bottlenose dolphins just love it. It's also really important sandbags for, uh, for sand eels, which is what the minke whales feed on. Um, so yeah, basically the, the charity does a lot of work with, um, the bottlenose dolphin population up there. Cause it's the most northernly northern population of bottlenose dolphins. And these guys are huge. Like, you know, I'm used to the dolphins that we get here in Australia. And when I first saw one jumping out of the water, I'm like, it's not a flipping dolphin. Like <laughs> they're gigantic. It's a whale. <laughs> they, yeah. It, it, they, like they literally, the males get up to 650 kilos and they're, because they, um, they're adapted to living in such cold environments you know the um, peck fins are quite short and they've got really short rostrums. so um and they're they're really like flubby so they're um, not you like your graceful dolphins and everybody sort of pictures <laughs> about majestic dolphins the the area they they've, they've been studying the um population up there for many many years like a few decades now and they're actually um just had the area designated as a marine protected area which is absolutely awesome and a lot of that has come off the data that um, this project has been conducting for the past like you know 20 years so that's pretty cool so yeah i guess just being up there being on the water being out there and just seeing these animals in their natural environment was just like just got me hooked that's what, kind of where i got hooked on minkies as well i had a pretty incredible experience in a kayak out um, in the bay of the town that we used to live in and you know, never really kayaked before and just jumped in a kayak, no life jacket and paddled out to the North Sea, which probably wasn't a great idea. But um, yeah, had a had a minky feeding and like did this massive lunge feed about five metres in front of my kayak. And I was just like, oh, that was incredible. And then it swam right underneath me and sort of just surfaced about three metres in front of me and just looked me in the eye. And I just like, just... Oh no, something clicked and I was like, okay, this is this is what I want to do.
1: Wow, that is incredible. I love hearing people's whale stories because whales are definitely my favorite animal. And I was just thinking that maybe the Loch Ness monster is actually just a really big dolphin. Yeah. (laughs) I did I didn't find it. (laughs) Damn it. That would have been pretty impressive. Um, now, obviously, since then, you have moved back to Australia and you got the opportunity to work with the Minky Whale Project, which is phenomenal, and as well as the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. Can you chat a little bit about what research you were conducting within those two those two businesses?
2: Yeah. Um, the Great Barrier Marine Park Authority is the federal organisation that manages the Great Barrier Reef. So a lot of the work wasn't necessarily that I was doing wasn't um, research, it was more just like management of the of the marine park I did a lot of um, science coordination just to you know that a lot of the decisions made by the authority is based on science and from um, you know local researchers and things like that so it's really important for people making the management decisions to have that link between science and you know what's actually going on in the marine park so part of my job was to basically Find what's going on and coordinate that, and make sure that um, you know like disseminate papers and things like that to make sure that um, all the staff had the knowledge they needed to be able to manage the park correctly or in the best in, in its best interest. So um, yeah, personally, I didn't do any research with the Marine Park Authority, um, but with the minkiwa project, that's that's kind of like my passion. That's that's my that's probably where I see myself settling after I finish my PhD was being back with that project. Um, I mean, gosh, working with them for almost 10 yeah, ten years, this will be my 10th year with the project. Minky Whale's, the, the Minky Whale project is a multi disciplinary research. We work on the biology behavior and the um, sustainable management of the Swim With Whale tourism industry. I don't know, and it's pretty cool just because you know, there's like this incredible whale that we know so little about. Like um, they were only discovered in the Great Barrier Reef in the mid-1980s. And this is the only known predictable aggregation of dwarf minky whales that we have found anywhere in the, in the southern hemisphere. So it's pretty special being able to go there every year and seeing these awesome animals in their natural environment just carrying on with their minky business. So it's pretty cool. This might um,
1: sound a bit silly, but I actually did not know until, you know, chatting with Tess about having you on the podcast that they were in Australia. I feel like the humpbacks take over, you know, everything we think about whales in Australia. So it's so incredible to hear that they are actually riding yeah, on that doorstep.
2: definitely. So humpbacks do my PhD on them, but I kind of call them the prancers of the sea because, you know, they're like, because they're so, they're very coastal and they sort of everybody sees them all the time. But um dwarf minkeys, they're... Um, tend to sort of stick further offshore. Um, they basically follow the continental shelf line when they're migrating. And they're quite, I mean, you know, they're called dwarf Mickey whales, so we say they're small in term terms of a whale, but the largest measured one is, um, what, 7.8 metres, so that's still pretty big, you know. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they, they definitely spend, a, they're not as, um, they're a little bit more cryptic. But every June, July, they... Um, Aggregate in the northern Great Barrier Reef, and they're really inquisitive. And they'll actually approach boats and divers. And they've actually had to sort of work around um, because you, you don't, there, there aren't a lot of swim with whale programs in the world, full stop, because it can be quite invasive. So, this was it's, the project is run on a different model because you can't really stop the whales from approaching boats and swimmers. So um, you've actually sort of had to manage the people rather than the whales. Uh, Yeah, they we basically head up there every year. There's a a very um, small amount of permits that are allowed for people to actually go out and swim with dwarf minke whales. Um, And we have a really amazing relationship with the tourism industry, and without them, we would not be able to conduct our research at all. And basically, they give us a spot. They give a, a spot for a researcher on a boat, and we go out and we collect our data. And um, we also act as a bit of a, you know, talk to passengers and educate them and give presentations and tell them, you know, why the research is so important and what we're doing. And yeah, it's just a really great model. It's um, it's not quite, it's not, it's not as invasive as, as other sort of, you know, interactions with wild animals because it's 100% on the whale's terms. It's like the the boat will rock up to the dive spot. Um, they'll be usually moored at a at a bombing or something like that. And then, if the whales are there, they'll often approach the boats first. And then, basically, we put people in the water, and they are attached to a snorkel line, which is attached to the boat, and they basically just float on top of the water, very still. And the whales will come in if they want. If they don't, they won't. So, um, yeah, it's just it's really on on the animals' ter- um, own terms. And um, yeah so we collect photo id and we get people to actually um help us with that as well so people on the line taking photo id of the whales and yeah there's there's, there's lots of really cool stuff that the project is getting into
0: that's so cool I'm really I sorry so
2: <laughs> <not. laughs>
0: no not at all when you're passionate about minky i like But you said minky business before when you're passionate <laughs> about whales um we understand it for sure um Uh, that's just incredible even the fact that you say that they they can choose to participate they can choose to come over like that's what it's all about you know like having them have that choice to either come over and investigate or not and then if they don't well there you go tough like that's just um how it is so that's a really cool I like that concept for sure now um you said that you've been working with minkies or working with whales for 10 years now is this something that you've learned um alongside all your years of Working with whales in your research that you can share with us? Oh, like so much! I don't know, don't even know where to start. <laughs> I guess more recently worked
2: like sort of more to do with my PhD is I'm doing a lot of work on social learning in in um, humpbacks. So, but yeah, obviously I had to do a lot of background information on um, social learning in cetaceans, and it's just absolutely incredible. The, th- the things that they learn and teach each other, and basically, you know, it's it's I, I'd never really heard the concept before about animal culture. To think about that is is pretty amazing. So, culture is um, basically it could be broadly defined as like uh, socially learned information or behaviors, which are then passed on between conspecifics, also like animals, you know, from species to sp- um, from species from animals that are within the same species. Um, and they're so specific to uh, a population. So that's what basically is a broad thing of culture. So within that, social learning is like super important. So it's actually like a critical foundation of, of animal culture. So social learning is um, learning that's influenced by or um, observation of interactions with other animals. And it's usually conspecifics. So, you know, this just some of the stuff that I've been reading is just absolutely crazy. Yeah, the the different behaviours and things like that that other animals teach each other is just amazing. So with the killer whales, you know, the older, more experienced hunters will often teach younger animals how to do certain um, hunting behaviours. And then you've got like, um, you know, crows that basically use pandanus leaves to, and you know, manipulate them to create tools to be able to, you know, get sticks, get um, insects out of logs and things like that. And, you know, they have, it's basically the same tool that they like the same leaf that they're using, but different populations will have population distinct design for these individual tools. And that's all just through social learning. So yeah, it's pretty incredible just just to learn about that. So yeah, especially within, so within the whales and what my PhD is on is social learning in humpback whales. And I'm focusing on how they learn song from each other. So that's that's been a pretty cool thing to, to get into.
1: I feel like social structures with incitations and their social behaviours is absolutely something that fascinates me. And I always think back to the, the killer whales of Eden that were work, like collaborating with people to help hunt the baleen whales, I think, down there. And that was all due to learning from their older whales and to me like that's just insanely fascinating that they were able to learn such complexity and still you know in their favor as well
2: yes yeah yeah so cool
1: yeah now obviously you spoke about your PhD and we want to talk a whole lot more about that too so like you said you're focusing in social learning with humpbacks and I would love to know I guess a little bit more about what you've learned and what you're researching specifically with them
2: I'm currently with the cetacean ecology group, which is based at the University of Queensland. And um, my project's on social learning in humpback whales. So specifically looking at the capacity and patterns of song learning. Humpback whale song, it's quite different to social sounds, which is probably what most people are familiar with when they think of whales vocalizing. So song is very structured and it has a set hierarchy in which sounds are sung in a particular order. So while, Both males and females make social sounds. It's only the male humpback whales that sing. Mm -hmm. Now, the really cool thing is that um, all males within one population sing the same song. So all the whales that are swimming or migrating up the east coast of Australia all sing one song. And another population, so for example, on the west coast of Australia, they're all singing a different song. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) this is so cool. My mind is like, what? (laughs) Oh wait, there's more. <laughs> the song is actually learnt through social learning, so they learn from each other, and the song isn't static either. Like it's continually evolving, and as the song evolves, they they're picking up the changes and they're incorporating it into their song, and they all sort of like evolve together. Yeah, so it's it's pretty incredible. But um, and that that behaviour is or that um yeah that particular behaviour is has been documented in all humpback whale populations, so in the northern and southern hemisphere. But in the Southern Hemisphere, in addition to song evolution, we also get what we call song revolutions. So this is where a new song is introduced into a population and it rapidly spreads. And the new song is actually introduced from a neighbouring population. So, for example, on the east coast of Australia, new song is introduced from the population on the west coast of Australia. So it's basically like everyone singing on, you know, everyone uh, singing Michael Jackson, and then the next year, all of a sudden, everybody's singing Beyoncé. Like it's, um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. And it doesn't just stop at East Australia. So this song transmission of song has actually been documented um, all across the South Pacific, as far as French Polynesia. And basically, you can really clearly see the different song lineages or different song types move from one population to the next um, from year to year. So it's pretty amazing. While we know that the song from East Australia. The song is introduced from West Australia. There hasn't been a very long-term um, study of population song in Western Australia. I think uh, mainly because during the winter, when the whales are swimming there, the, the the sea conditions on the west aren't great. <laughs> so it is a little bit harder than on the east on the on the on East Australia side. But um, yeah, basically I've I've done my study. I'm, I'm using all archive data, so. My study period is from around 2008 to 2016, and I've just finished a full um, eight-slash-nine-year, basically very deep, detailed analysis of the West Australia song. That's, yeah, one of my chapters. Um, and also, yeah, so further chapters will be things like looking at whether um, there's sort of like a template for how whales, how humpback whales conduct social learning of song. Because it is such rapid change and because, you know, everybody learns so quickly, it's really not known, you know, the the cognitive ability to be able to hear a new song while you're still singing the old song and then be able to just switch and, you know, come in with this new new rendition of the song is, like, pretty amazing. So we don't really know how they're able to do it, but um, I'll sort of be looking into seeing whether there's maybe, like, a template which kind of might... Make it a little bit easier for whales to learn how the song changes. So that's that's one chapter, and then I'll also be looking at um, uh, yeah a few a few other with aspects, but I won't go into detail because who knows what could change <laughs> by the time wow. I finish PhD. Oh yeah, that's <laughs>
1: so cool! Like I am literally mind blown by that. And do we know like the song? Is it utilized for just social communication, or is it utilized specifically for attracting females? do we know why that thing
2: goes on? yeah there's a few um, theories either there it's yeah, a lot of the time song gets oh, like the male song gets um, compared with like bird song so you know whether it's male's trying to attract a female or whether it's male's trying to warn off other males we're not we're not really sure or it could be a third reason that we have no idea but yeah we don't really know but yeah it's it's still still unsure
0: that's so cool and I'm picturing you, you know, other people at night time like listening to their music with their headphones on, there's you at night time like listening to whale songs, just like <laughs> listening to it. <laughs> and I know like a lot of a lot of people are like, oh wow, it must be so amazing, it's like,
2: yes it is, but sometimes I'm like, if I hear one more whale song, I'm gonna. <laughs> yes, I bet. No, better, yeah. oh. <laughs> Deep into it, sometimes people would talk and be like, oh, that sounds like, whale B from theme X of
0: year 2010 (laughs) so yeah and you're like wow I need a break from this (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so cool I find that so interesting um like the amount of information that's still out there and what you've already gathered is is really cool so a lot of potential there and I can see why you're so fascinated in it so that's awesome well done uh well as always we do have a few questions from our listeners so do you mind if we wrap up with those last few questions yeah sure all right well um first one was what is your favorite whale species well (laughs) definitely easy well
2: yeah it's like humpbacks are cool don't get me wrong but um i've just had like Probably one of the most incredible experiences, wildlife experiences I've ever had, was um, on the end of a minke line and we were drifting, which means the boat isn't moored, it's just sort of floating along and that, um, you sort of hanging onto the rope for dear life, to, you know, get left behind. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're having this incredible encounter and there were like 20 plus dwarf minkies, and they were really interactive and they were zooming past us and getting really close. And then I heard um, the people in the boat like, Jenna, come on in. And I was like, are you kidding me? They're like, we're drifting towards a reef. I'm like, okay, time to come in. So Mm -hmm. I sort of turned around and like got one last photo for photo ID of this whale that was right there and started pulling myself in. And then, you know, you just feel like there's someone behind you. And I kind of stopped and I turned around and the whale was still there. And I was like, oh, oh, this is good. (laughs) I'm like, all right, got to get in. So I pull myself in and then like, He just followed me all the way back to the boat, kind of like he was escorting me back, you know. And, like, I'm talking, when I say close, I mean, we're talking like like one or two metres. And he's just like, I should say he, I don't really know, but um, just staring at me, just didn't break eye contact, followed me all the way back to the boat. And then we got back into the boat and everyone was like, that was amazing, that was the best thing ever. And, you know, there are tears crying, everyone's carrying on about how incredible it was. And then everyone sort of got to the top of the boat and we slowly started moving off. But the whales just basically was by the side of the boat and they all started like spy hopping where they put their heads out of the water, like looking up at us, like, where are you going? we <laughs> like, It was just the most incredible thing ever. And then even, yeah, we the boat left and they followed us for a couple of, yeah, for about um, five minutes or so. And, yeah, it was just absolutely incredible. And I've never had that sort of connection with a wild animal before. Like, you know, we say dwarf well, but like I said you know these animals still get up to just under eight meters so it's like yeah it's just incredible they're amazing.
1: Wow I would have been bawling my eyes out if that happened. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. Um, okay so question number two is do you have any advice for people listening that might want to work more with the research and how to get into that?
2: Yeah I mean I think getting a degree is really important i didn't think it would be important until after i did it and i was like oh well actually i needed to learn a lot (laughs) so yeah so when I when i first started in scotland i didn't have any sort of any degree i didn't have, have any real training in how to collect data scientific method anything like that um and when i came back to australia i actually found it really difficult to get work even though i had lots of experience no one really would um give me a chance because I didn't have the degree so like that was just how like my journey into it um but there are always opportunities same with zookeeping there's always opportunities to volunteer so just sort of get get out there volunteer where you can because there's so many different types of research there's so many different aspects of it as well so I think Before jumping in, it's sort of good to test the water and see what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. Like, you know, my boss used to always say much happier field mouse than lab rat. So, you know, some people prefer to be looking down a microscope, but you know, some people prefer to be out the field. So
0: yeah, I guess just
2: really finding what does it for you.
0: Makes sense. Um, Now, our final question was, did you find it difficult leaving the zoo industry?
2: That was, yeah, honestly a very, very difficult choice for me to make because especially because I had, I always wanted to be a marine mammal trainer and I had, there are so little opportunities in Australia and I had managed to get my dream job and I'd worked so hard to get there and the thought of leaving it, it was was actually, um, it was definitely a very hard decision and I still (laughs) remember when I handed my resignation into the curator at underwater world <laughs> I handed it in and then burst into tears in his office and he was like uh are you, are you okay are you sure you know I was like oh anyway <laughs> I was like I just don't know if I'm making the right decision um you know I guess looking back at it now like 100 it was the right choice for me to make at the time but I was actually thinking about this the other day it's like you can get out of zookeeping it doesn't mean that you are never going to get back in. Like I am 110% sure that if tomorrow I thought, no, I don't want to do research, I want to go back and work with the animals, it would be okay. Like you're not closing one door, so it's
0: just, you know, opening the veranda. I don't know. (laughs) I think that's a same. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's always an opportunity later. And that's actually one of my favorite things about you, Jenna, was you were up north and you would just come back for like a little stint at Lone Pine during the holidays. And I love that about Lone Pine that we're so chill. Like we hadn't seen you in months and months. You just come back, whip on a uniform. You know, call some birds in the show. They still all recognize you. And they're like, oh, hey, Jenna, I haven't, haven't seen you in a hot minute. But, yeah, I'll, I'll fly down to you. And, yeah, it's so good. And that that's exactly what you said, too. Like, just because you're doing research or you're doing marine stuff now, it doesn't mean the door's close. Like, maybe in, you know, five or ten years, you're like, look, I, I want to dabble back in the terrestrial world. Like, absolutely, that, that door will be open. Well, my door will be open anyway. You can come back and <laughs> come back
1: (laughs) anytime and I can let you know that the seals are still doing really well and so you should come visit them whenever you can
2: I'm actually at the sunny coast now I was like should I probably do that tomorrow yes (laughs) yes you absolutely should (laughs) another bit of advice is don't let someone like a career advisor or someone tell you that don't do marine biology because you won't get a job like that is rubbish. There are always opportunities everywhere. You just, like you're saying, a lot of the time, you know, it is who you know, but once you get in there, you meet people, you network. So don't ever let someone be the keeper of your dreams. Just go out and do it.
0: Yeah, I think that's great advice for sure. I know a lot of people who have gone very far with their um, marine biology degree. So great advice, Jenna. Well, it's been so wonderful talking to you and great to catch up too. Always a pleasure to chat with. I love your little giggle. Um, <laughs> we have absolutely loved this chat and, yeah, you're just incredible and a great inspiration to anyone who wants to move out of the zoo industry and get their head in the book. So we love it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jenna. Wow, Daisy, that was such an interesting chat. I think that it's so nice, as we've mentioned before, talking to someone on the show that we actually have a connection with. So to see my friend uh, flourish from, you know, working in the zoo industry to getting into research and loving it is is really exciting and great to see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still fascinated by her PhD and the focus on singing humpbacks. That's so amazing. And I'd be really interested to check back in on her maybe in 12 months and see, you know, what they've been able to learn. Um, But if you guys aren't aware, every single week we do chuck our guest contact details in the show notes. So please feel free to reach out to them if you do have any more questions. But that is us for this week. We look forward to seeing you
0: next week for another episode. Thank you very much. See you around. Bye. Bye.